Hello, hello. So this is very exciting. It is our very first podcast guest and we've got Liam Dunn with us here today. So it's going to be myself and Patrick asking some questions, going deep into Liam's knowledge. And just as a quick introduction, Liam is a, a expert in the space of growth, not only for SaaS companies where he specializes in, but in the whole B2B space. Liam is one of the best people I know at helping companies to differentiate in crowded markets. Nowadays with AI and all the tools we have, there's such a crowded online market, but Liam is constantly coming up with new ways to allow his clients to cut through that noise. And I'll let Liam speak a little bit more about the results he's had, but really the proof's in the pudding with some of the companies he's worked with have gone to be making, have gone to millions and millions in annual revenue. And that's a, a lot in part due to his behind the scenes work. So Liam, I'll let you introduce yourself. How are you doing? All good, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I can top that intro to one. It's pretty good, thanks. Um, but yeah, as you said, uh, founder of DigiSeed. Um, so we're, we're essentially a, a marketing agency uh, that exclusively works with B2B SaaS companies. Um, we pri primarily focus on paid media programs and outbound, outbound and yeah, like you said, we do, I guess we kind of specialize in um, messaging and creative development, which then leads to these companies standing out. Um, so yeah, looking forward to, to chatting today. Nice, nice. Patrick, do you want to take on, take over? Yeah. So Liam, obviously you've worked with a lot of, uh, a lot of companies, a lot of brands that some of our listeners will probably recognize, and I'm sure we can name drop instantly and that will be instantly recognized so maybe do you want to tell us a little bit about how what it was like to to kind of work with instantly the kind of results that you that you got for them um and what you did like in that in that space yeah um so i mean i've been i'm still working with instantly today um you know secretly one of my favorite clients um at this point probably been working with them for uh 18 months or so at this point um so when i i first started working with instantly um, I was really fresh into my journey at DigiSeed, uh, so really at the early stages. And honestly, uh, it was pretty chaotic back then. I was kind of like um, a consultant that that did multiple things. I was executing, you know, I was um, providing a ser providing okay. services to them, but I was really like, there was no structure to it. I was just helping them. Um, and at the beginning, that was with mm. getting visibility. It was with retention. Um, I built out their entire onboarding strategy, um, I've helped with customer support, all these kind of things that I did when I worked in SaaS um, and then sort of transitioned over to exclusively working on um, custom acquisition. So we were like the, the first dollar spent in their ad accounts um, and we've scaled their, their paid demand programs from, you know, spending zero dollars a month to, you know, six figures per month uh, really profitably. Um, and I kind of get involved with, with all sorts of other bits and bobs, but yeah, primarily focusing on, um, custom acquisition for them. Nice. 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 And how are, how are instantly um, doing at the moment? Oh, sorry. Go on. Uh, they're doing good. There's a bit of a delay, but they're, they're doing good. Um, I can't actually, <laughs> they've got to the point where they, we can't publicly 
talk, I can't really publicly talk about their numbers anymore, but, um, you know, it was public that they bootstrapped from zero to uh, $15 million in ARR in around 18 months or so. And, you know, they've, they've gone quite well past that now, um, completely bootstrapped. They haven't raised any external investment um, and they're still growing, you know, really, really fast. Yeah, that's that's so impressive, isn't it? And obviously, you've been at the at the centre of that journey, and I'm sure we'll we'll dive into how you've managed to to achieve that with them. Um, Ryan, I think you you have uh, you mentioned to me that Liam's coined the phrase "the death of outbound." Um, do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to maybe explore that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely you know the talk of death of outbound, death of traditional outbounds, the the rise of outbound 3.0. And I would say instantly is probably one of the key drivers within that space. It'd be good to hear a little bit more from you, Liam, around, you know, what are the big changes that are happening in outbound sales? What what have people been doing over the last five to 10 years? And why is that being disrupted? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the, the, the death of outbound. So, I, I, yeah, I typically say, like, the old way of outbound is dead, Um and, you know, there's a marketing spin to that, right? Um, polarization um, works really well in marketing. It, it captures people's attention, but um, it's, you know, there's there's definitely no lie in there. Um, basically, the, the reason why I talk about this is um, I actually used to be an SDR myself at a SaaS company. Um, and so I've, I've lived and breathed this. Um, and the, the current way, and it's slowly changing, the current way that companies um, run outbound is is they follow the the predictable revenue playbook right this was a book that was published almost uh, 15 years ago which kind of describes the outbound function that um, they built at salesforce um, and so this is the playbook that most companies uh, follow today right um, and it's heavily reliant on outbound teams you know on on sdrs um, and like i said i used to be an sdr myself so i used to do this um, and i just think they the the sort of tactics and and tools that these companies use haven't really kept up with the times um and if you combine this with the fact that every single company is using this playbook um you know results have just fallen through the floor um so you know open rates reply rates meet and booked rates ultimately pipeline and revenue has just diminished over time because everyone's doing the same thing and you know there's just been a a fail of uh, a failure to to innovate now where kind of instantly fits into this is you, you look at the kind of, um, there's this sort of uh, graph, it's like the innovation adoption graph or something like that or model. Um, and at the beginning, you have these like tech innovators. Um, and I think instantly was one yeah, of them, the, right? The they fusion of they introduced, yes, yes. So they, they introduced this tool that, in, in my opinion, completely changed how companies do cold outbound. Um, and then you have like the, the early adopters, right. Which I think is like people like yourselves, uh, like me, like people that, you know, are keeping an eye out with this, this keeping an eye out on these new ways of, of doing things. And then I think we're slowly getting to the point where people are starting to question the wider market. The mainstream are starting to question, wait, why are we doing it this way? Why are we, why have we been doing this for so long? And you know, the, the results just, just aren't really there. Why are we paying so much for these expensive teams and softwares? when, you know, there's a completely better way to, to get better results. Um, but yeah, I, I think instantly he's really been that like one of the innovators there, like introducing this tool to the market. And I think it's just completely disrupted um, the way that, that companies are doing cold outbound today. 
Yeah, 100%. The the innovation that that instantly brought to the market has completely changed how we approach things. The necessity to have a sales team of 10 to 20 SDRs is just no longer it's just no longer the case. We're now able to do outreach in a much more thoughtful but way that yields the same results but with you know a fraction of the cost. And I think off the back of that, we've also seen other technology add to this so that you know other parts of the role of an SDR can be replaced. So I was interested to think, are there any kind of other tools that come to mind that you think are shaping this new outbound era? Absolutely. Um, but first of all, I think tools, I always think technology is like... Um, the icing on the cake, right? Of course, um, like this new way of doing outbound, you know, I don't know if you can do it without tools like instant. I don't know if you can sort of build a custom solution that does inbox rotation, but I think the first step is tactics, right? Like, um, and I'll come onto the tools that you can deploy these tactics with. Like if you look at what companies can do, like uh, from a company standpoint and tactics, then I think like number one is they just need to do whatever it takes to get in the primary inbox. And this is one of like the main value yeah. propositions we push for instantly, you know, using secondary domains, inbox rotation, spin tax, all these things that yeah. seem really, really basic to people like myself and you who, uh, and, and you Patrick have been doing cold email for, for, for a while now. Um, and then I think that the tools are just like taking that step further. So um, I think this is another important part is, if you look at like the sales engagement software category, um, the, these are the tools that the, that were sort of created on the back of this um, this this predictable revenue book, um, and they're just really expensive, right? They're tens of thousands of dollars per year, and there's just tools nowadays that you can get the same outcomes, if not better, for far less. And some of those tools are like uh, instantly for sending and warm up, so warming up your domains, preparing them to be able to send. Uh, Smart Lead is is another tool that that cropped up. Um, for data, you have tools like, uh, find email is one of my favorites. Um, Wizard, uh, instantly also has, um, a lead data list kit, all of these tools that are really cost effective and give you good data. Um, and then you have tools like clay, which is like kind of appeared on the scene recently. And I think clay is like the next evolution of cold email where you can automate like mm. research, scraping personalization like really as good as an sdr could um, and then of course you've got tools like you guys introduced you know pitch lane um that enable you to do like video outreach at scale um there's just a whole suite of tools out at the moment that like um yeah. that just completely challenge how co companies are currently doing cold outbound yeah i agree i think it's really interesting to consider that I've also done SDR type work, um, especially you know at the start of um, working with a lot of companies, early stage startups, and the key difference I've noticed is that previously, a a head of sales would get a sales team, give them the strategy, and then the sales team would go execute it on a one to one basis. So you'd check an account, see if it was a good fit, think about the different ways in which you'd outreach to them. But now with so many tools, with clay, with AI com combined with scraping, so much of the SDR role can be front loaded 
into that strategy can actually be put into code and executed literally overnight. You know, we've had times where we've had lists of 10,000 companies. We've scraped all of them, evaluated them across different um, characteristics, which impact whether we want to reach out to them or how we reach out to them. And overnight, we now have a completely segmented list of um, companies into ways that are really val valuable for our you know, value proposition. And that's literally what someone's entire job used to be. So my question to you, and something that I think about a lot is, what is the SDR position going to look like in five years? Will it even still exist? Is it even going to be the same person? Um, yeah, mm. tell me, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like the same type of person, like profile, mm. characteristics. Yeah, yeah, I have some some thoughts to share on this. So, uh, and by the way, it's just, I, I find like... I, I think I'm like you guys. I like to, <laughs> I like to nerd out about this stuff because um, like someone who used to be an SDR, cold outbound is like a key channel for like growing my company. And so I think it's important to like keep an eye on how it's all changing. Um, so I think I could kind of summarize this into a couple of points. So I think where SDRs spend most of their time today will be automated. So finding leads, mm. um, doing research, um, send in personalized emails. I think all of this can be automated, especially with tools like Clay, right? Like um, the, the common objection to automation is like, oh, you'll never um, reach the, the same standard as like a, an SDR can. And I guarantee you can, and you'll be able to send more volume. Like ultimately, you know, the, the way SDRs out um, personalize is they look at LinkedIn profiles, they look at websites, they look at blogs, they look mm. at um, investment rounds. All of this can be done Um automatically nowadays so that's the first point i think like the first that the, the uh, sort of research lead part of um outbound will be fully automated um and i think a, a result of this a byproduct of this we'll see team sizes shrink because you know there'll be less sort mm. of man hours um to, to do this sort of stuff and i think potentially and some companies already operate this way i think um outbound might become more of a marketing responsibility, that part of outbound. Um, and I think we'll see more of an emergence. And I've already seen this at some companies of like a, a growth engineer role, um, which is essentially a marketer who's tech savvy, you know, who knows SQL and knows how to automate things and um, hook up APIs together. Um, and I think we'll see a lot more companies putting outbound under, the, like the automated part of outbound um, under that roof. Now, like, a caveat here is I do think there's still be a need for SDRs, but their efforts mm. are going to be mostly focused on like the account-based marketing side of things, the ABM side of things where, you know, those manual touch points, those, those enterprise accounts that are worth a lot of money and they just need that human touch, um, you know, on LinkedIn or whether it be physical mail, that kind of stuff. Um, and then also, yeah dealing with in, inbound as well. Um, so I think the SDR role, in my opinion, is still going to very much exist, but most of where they spend their time today is going to be automated potentially um, by, you know, put under marketing's responsibility. Interesting. Interesting. So Patrick, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. In this, mm. in this uh, conversation, you know, you're, you actually have that software engineering background. You actually have the capacity to write these things because, you know, me and Liam will be using the latest SaaS products, but, 
you know, I could definitely say I've benefited mm -hmm. from having a co-founder that will just create their own solutions. Um, I'd love to hear, like, what do you think around the fact that we're going to automate a lot of what an SDR does? What do you think are going to be the benefits? Where do you think potentially we're overestimating? Like, give us some thoughts on that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, we at one point wanted to build something very similar to Clay and have uh, have since just gone, you know what, Clay is good enough. Let's uh, let's go with that. Um, I do think it's it's revolutionary in that it just combines all the things that you want to do. It's extensible in that if it doesn't have something out of the box, you can make an API uh, connection into something else and you can pull together all your different data sources into the one place. Um, I do think that the the role of like where Outbound sits, I think previously has sat a lot more with SDRs, you know, doing cold calls and then sending emails at the same time. It's going to move probably to be more of a strategic thing rather than an operational. So I think it will either be like heads of sales, or as you say, falling under marketing. Um, that's definitely a trend. Like a lot of our, some of our customers in the US especially kind of put it under, under marketing already. Um, so that's definitely a trend that will continue, I think. And I do think, you know, it's, it's the best option out there, but it's not a silver bullet either. Like we do have to spend a lot of time yeah. going through and making sure, especially when, when AI is involved, that it's not just being stupid in what it's saying and it's not just producing personalizations that, that make no sense. So there's always obviously this, this friction of like, we want to get the, the prompt as perfect as possible. There's always some things we want to be able to clean up. Um, but you know, if, if in 99% of cases, what you're personalizing is a lot more targeted and a lot more relevant to who you're reaching out to, of course, your campaign is going to perform better. So it's, it's one of these things you've got to be aware of, but at the end of the day, this is what, how things push forward. And it is more about at scale. Do you get the same result as if you were individualizing on a smaller list? So that's, that would be my, my two cents on it. Um, Liam, have you, in terms of like your experience with uh, things like clay, have you had any of these like AI, uh, AI problems of prompts going wrong or personalizations that, that don't quite, that don't quite cut it all the way? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was moaning to Ryan over WhatsApp the other day about it. Um, and he, he helped me solve a problem. Yeah, it's, and, and Ryan summarized it quite well. When AI gets it wrong, it gets it very wrong. And it's kind of like um, yeah. a child that has done something wrong and won't admit it. You just can't get it to do the right thing. Um, and so you just have to kind of start again, I found. Um, but I'm, I, I use like ChatGPT a lot, right? Like hours, hours per week, definitely. Um, I, I honestly like think you are crazy if you're not using it. Um, like it's, it's inputs and outputs. I do think, um, you know, it's, it's only as good as sort of the, the prompts you give it and, and how you engineer it. There are limitations to that. Like, like, um, you, you just said, but yeah, I, I encounter issues all the time. Um, you know, sometimes I, I think I'd be able to do it faster myself. Like just, just some, sometimes like, you know, asking it to go to a website and, and write like a first line and, it's too enthusiastic. It's using too many exclamation marks. It's saying really cringy things. Like these are all problems um, that I've experienced, but yeah, it's getting better. Um, and I think uh, what tools like Clay allow you to do is they allow you to go down an alternative path. So like previously to personalize emails, I would use like a, a website. Um, but with Clay, you can easily grab like the about 
section or description of a company's LinkedIn profile, which is really, really useful um, for personalizing. You can like look at um, the individual's uh, job experience, their about section. Um, you can like go to uh, different pages on their website. Like it's, it's a lot smarter than just using ChatGPT out of the box. Um, but yeah, it's not perfect. Like it is, it's not perfect, but I think yeah. it is better than, than doing it manually. And I think what, what's speeding this entire, um, this entire change is the fact that, well, just what's going on around us, right? Like, it seems like the market has just, um, you know, had a bit of a pinch. Um, you know, there's, uh, 250 ish K 250,000 tech layoffs, uh, just this year alone. Um, and so companies are, you know, questioning their overheads. They're questioning, like every person at the company has to kind of, you know, justify yeah, why, Well, the company has to justify their expense. Yeah. And so companies are looking for more for efficient sure. ways to do things. Um, and what's, what's more efficient than, than people it's, it's automation. Right. And I'm not saying, I, I'm not saying automation is always <laughs> better than people. Um, but you know, I'm sure you guys have run campaigns and I've certainly run campaigns sort of like for like against SDR teams. And, and typically we will outperform them with, with less, uh, less resource, you know, less people on our side, um, just through like automation and also not just automation, but knowing how to having the knowledge and the skills to leverage the automation. That's the important part. I yeah, think 100%. people are going to have to I learn think, that. Yeah. The, the, the automation being accessible, um, to, to non coders, I think is the, is the huge revolution with it because, you know, previously, if you're, mm -hmm. like you're saying, someone would have to make a growth engineer role and obviously companies do this, but they've got to then go hire that person. That's their full-time job. They've got to put the resource into that. Whereas, now, you know, you've got an idea for a campaign, you can pull in from three different data sources, you don't need to write it custom, you can just do all these things. And it lets marketers, salespeople experiment a lot more, um, just just independently. And I think that's, that's, I think the real the real plus for clay, like that's going to allow us to scale for sure. And it's probably open doors for, for companies that just wouldn't have been there before. Yeah, mm. and I think mm. one thing that I think was really interesting is around that the point around expertise and using um, the tools as best as possible. SDRs and sales reps are often entry level roles, so you can't expect them to have to not make any mistakes when it comes to deliverability, to when it comes to setting out campaigns. And what I think is really interesting is traditionally the transfer of knowledge within a company goes from the senior employees to the entry level staff who then you know grow grow within the company but eventually the sdr function people grow out of it because they hate it it's not an enjoyable job it, you can get yourself riled up yeah. to do it but you know the sdr fatigue is a real thing like it's um really tough but when you're instilling what you're doing into ai and automation yes it's very frustrating in terms of you know you have to change the prompt. You have to keep tweaking things just to fix where it goes wrong when it goes wrong in, su in such crazy ways. But it does get incrementally better all the time. Whereas when you have new staff, every time you get a new promotion, you reset, you have to rehire, you have to put investment and you, you can never grow your kind of knowledge base. And actually when you're improving your prompts and all that, that literally becomes an asset for the company because it's a revenue generator mm -hmm. 
without it really costing anything. And it, what it does, it just leverages expertise in a way that SDRs can't. So it's quite interesting how the the transfer of like knowledge and information is, for me at least, what one of the biggest things that that change changes when you use um, when you use uh, AI over SDRs and stuff like that. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I never, because say um, like. I think things like ChatGPT are inputs, outputs, right? And that's probably like going to open up a whole market for like future roles at companies, people who can build that. I think people are referring to it as like a company brain. Um, I might be taking that out of context though, where, you know, this um, this sort of um, database where, you know, it has all the company's knowledge. It's, you know, ICP, it's value proposition, it's messaging, uh, you know, common objections, that kind of stuff, um, like being able to build that and, you know, it probably contributes to the enterprise value of that company as well, because it's a, it becomes an asset, um, becomes, you know, it's part of its IP. That's quite interesting. Um, I think also, uh, like last comment on that, um, I think this is what has been stopping people from taking, um, from like capitalizing on all of this is the, the, the skill gap. Um, and that's why you have this sort of like innovation curve, right? You have those early adopters that are like yeah. just um, scrappy people who, you know, enjoy chaos, enjoy, you know, all right, these products might not be really good. They might not have all these shiny features, but, you know, they help me get some kind of outcome. And so I'm going to use them. Um, and so I think, yeah, that, I think there is still a, like a, a bit to go to make um, a lot of this tech more suitable to to like the the mainstream like even with tools like clay um let's be honest right like um you know your your average founder probably isn't going to have the expertise to use a tool like clay I, I don't think they will like there is there is a learning curve to use a tool like that um and i think you're going to see an emergence of specialists that that are really good at that and so i think there's there's a few more steps to be taken to to make it a bit more um user-friendly so that people can just hop in and and you know do what they want to do yeah i've actually seen um some people who are positioning themselves in that way where it's kind of like a tech enabled creative role where you create these campaigns that you would have previously need sdr teams to to do and i guess like on that topic there are other things that you can do um that, you know, SDRs can do in terms of like personalized messages or like personalized videos. So I'd be interested to see what you think about, you know, unique ways of reaching out, for example, using personalized videos and how that might be impacted in this kind of more automated sales function. Mm. Yeah. So, well, of course you guys um, have a, have a software in this space, right? So you probably know a lot more than I do. Um, but even when I was um, as an SDR, you know, I would send like personalized, like it's funny because it, it became a whole thing, like the personalized loom approach. Um, yeah. And I used to do that when I, when I was an SDR, I'd, you know, I had a whiteboard that would say the person's name. I actually wrote their name on it. Um, and I'd be like, you know, shaking it because I think it shows the first couple of seconds of the video or something. Um, I like reaching out to people yeah, on LinkedIn. Um, and I didn't really get much success. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I would do it over LinkedIn and email, but I didn't get much success, but that's because oh. I was just sending, like it took me to, like, you know, 20 minutes to write my script, you know, I would, I would overthink about it. Um, and then I, 
I used a similar tactic at DigiSeed and man, it, it absolutely ripped. Um, I'd say beginning of this year, um, like it, it did really well. It, it did so well that I, j- I just couldn't keep up with the responses um, because, you know, because um, most of the time I would like offer something, uh, I'd offer like an incentive, like a, a, an in-depth breakdown or something like that. And so it would take time from me. Um, and, you know, I, I started having like a backlog of, of people to follow up with. Um, so it is really effective. I think that for me, the, the results diminished over time as like, you know, this is, it's the, um, I don't know if you've ever heard it, the law of click, uh, the law of shitty click throughs. Um, and it basically says that when marketing tactics or sell, well, yeah, marketing tactics first come out, they perform really, really well because they're innovative and nobody's seen them before. And over time, as people adopt that tactic, the, the results diminish. It's like, pop-ups on a website used to perform really really good but now everyone has a pop-up and so they don't and so i think it's the same with cold email it's always like how do i get a step ahead how do i get a step ahead i think the automated sending of those videos is like the next step um because you know then it's a a numbers game um but yeah i I don't i don't do too much of that um nowadays I, i think i should put some more time into it nice yeah it's um it's definitely uh, the kind of thing where you need to keep innovating. We're always testing out different, you know, new features that we can add to increase conversions. Um, but you are you are definitely right with um, using personalized videos at at the scale there is now. There is still just a benefit from just even sending one because sometimes I also think we forget just how um, aware we are of all these different tactics that super often we'll get people coming back saying feedback that just adding a video and I'll look at the video. It's not the best video possible, but just that unique element gets people to click and, and you only really need one, one extra big sale to go through for it to be really noticeable and have a big change. Um, so I think, you know, we've spoken a lot about cold email and sales outbound. Is there, is there any other, like closing remarks or things you guys would want to add before we move on to just the broader kind of B2B um, growth space? Mm, no, nothing nothing from me. I think we've covered quite a lot. Yeah, um, maybe just maybe to touch on that saturation, like market saturation point about videos. You know, we, we do often get this feedback of like, you know, when, when do you think the, the market for video is going to be saturated? When are people going to be completely used to it? Maybe tell us a little bit about like how did you identify that in your in your campaigns? Because that's one of the first times we've heard that actually happening. Yeah, um, re- results. Uh, this the same as anything, but this this is the tough part about um, at least I find to be the tough part about cold email is it sometimes it's really hard to pinpoint what what's going wrong. Um, you know, I have actions I can take if I have low reply rate and open rate and stuff like that. But sometimes it, it really is a stab in the dark and sometimes it works. And you're like, okay, wh- whatever I did appear to work. And sometimes it, it's really hard to identify. Um, but yeah, my, my results just started to, to fall off a cliff. Um, now, was that due to the tactic, um, you know, the, the impact of the tactic diminishing or was that due to another factor like my deliverability or um dom- domains getting burned or a bad you know maybe the lead quality dropped um so it's it's really tough 
to to like pinpoint and say it was the videos but yeah just results started to drop um and i think combined with the fact that and this is very lazy of me right um and this is the problem with automation is it it does make you a bit lazy <laughs> i was like man this is taking a this is taking a lot of my time to like do you know follow up with these people and, and stuff like that um you know i've still got um some people that i just never got back to um um but also yeah, i did go through them and i prioritized the, the leads and everything but um yeah it was just it was just becoming a lot of work and like taken away from other parts of the business yeah makes sense makes complete yeah. sense um actually i uh when we ryan and i did a, a rambling podcast where we were just talking about all sorts of things to each other and one of the the interesting questions that came up was you mentioned there obviously there's deliverability there's targeting there's the, the video tactics there's you know all these other factors of follow-ups if you had to pick like one to say it's the most important and that's obviously a difficult question but what would be if you were giving advice to someone of all those things what would you recommend they focus on oh that's tough um like just any tactic related to cold email um yeah like deliverability or videos or copy or whatever sure number one so it would be deliverability and that's not really a tactic it's more so an area but you can write the greatest email in the world you can record a 20 minute video that is just perfect but if that email is landed in spam and nobody's seeing it it's you know uh, you, you're just playing an uphill battle there and i think that is the number one problem that um p- like plagues uh outbound teams is and this is it's a, it's a silent killer because you know you, you don't necessarily get the feedback telling you that your emails are like landing in yeah. spam or you know people uh, it's not landing in the primary inbox and so it has to be deliverability you know you can have all the bells and whistles but if your emails landed in spam then it's all for nothing that's a, yeah, that's I, a very well reasoned answer well. A, i like that one <laughs> nice um and so in terms of deliverability then liam what's the secret the secret um <laughs> well th- there's there's no secret to anything really everything already <laughs> exists um but i'd say um I think to to pres- preserve your deliverability, you shouldn't be sending emails from your primary domain. That's like step one, um, because what happens is people don't like cold emails, right? That's just a fact of the matter. And people are going to report your emails as spam. And if so many people report your emails as spam, your domain gets blacklisted and that's a bad day at the office. And so to prevent that- It's a seriously um, bad day. Or to prevent- <laughs> to prevent damaging your primary domain you need secondary domain so my primary domain is digic.co a secondary domain would be like try digic.co um, and so you set up sending accounts on secondary domains and so if anything bad happens to them it's kind of isolated from your primary domain that's like the, the step one um, and then when you have those new domains they're going to be fresh in the eyes of you know these um these email platforms and so you need to build up your uh, domain reputation and that's where tools like instantly uh, lemwarm and like smartlead come in where they mimic human behavior so google goes oh okay this is a real person and not a spammer um and then to like maintain good deliverability i think it's uh, a mixture of things right um inbox rotation so not just burning through the same domains all the time like rotating how the emails are being sent like best practices, um, like using spin tax, don't use, um, and this is hard because Google doesn't say, Hey, if you do this, you're in trouble. Uh, Cause otherwise it wouldn't work. 
Um, but thing, I think there are like trigger words that you can use. Like for example, I yeah. removed any currency symbols from my emails because I heard that um, having currency symbols in, in your emails like affects your deliverability, and it did like removing them positively impacted my deliverability. Um, I don't have any links in my emails. Um, and I think just generally, I think the best advice I can give is don't be a spammer. Like, you know, actually have positive intent. Um, cold email gets a really bad rep. Um, like have positive intent, clean your lead lists, um, make sure, you know, the leads you're reaching out to are verified. They actually have a problem that you can solve. You know, don't just spray and pray. That that's not the that is not the objective of automation. It's not spray and pray. Like you should have something that can solve a problem for people. Um, otherwise, you know, it's just not not legitimate business. Um, but yeah, I think that's off the top of my head. That's what I have. But there's probably a few more things that you know can improve your deliverability. Yeah, I nice. agree. I'm, I agree. I'm sure, on that uh, I'm sure our viewers are gonna are gonna love that. <laughs> Oh, sorry, nice. Ryan, go on. Nice. No, I was just going to say on that last point is now that there are just so many different ways of flooding someone's inbox, whether it's using instantly just an outsourced sales team or whatever, people's inboxes are so crowded. And that can really be linked back to a lot of issues related to automation. So there's a lot in the news around Google's cracking down on cold email it's the end of cold email all this what i think it's the end of is the spray and pray approaches and it's by and large a good thing there's no point reaching out to someone who shows no interest in your product the only reason people are doing it is because it's more effort to make to cut down your lead list to just those who want what you're selling yeah. and if there's more stringent regulations and like more stringent um, rules on whether you land in spam or not, that's only a good thing because if that's if that happens, people are just going to then see it being worthwhile to put the effort in to clean the list because we all know we can't do it. And there's using positive intent signals, but also just looking at your list and actually properly cleaning it, which most people don't take the time to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But th the thing is, this is just the basics, right? Um, but I think yeah. if everyone did the basics in this world, then we probably wouldn't have most of the issues we do. Um, but yeah, it's just like, this is the fundamental stuff. Like, you know, define an ICP, people who you actually solve a problem for, you know, ver clean your data, mm -hmm. verify it. Um, don't send spammy messages. Um, and just like, you know, when people ask to unsubscribe, unsubscribe them or give them an option to unsubscribe. Like this is just Billy basics. And if, you, if you're not following that kind of stuff, then, you know, karma's going to get you. <laughs> All right, I'm back. Can you guys hear me? lose you for a second. Yep, I've got you. Yeah. What happened? Did you leave? Cool, Pop. Oh no, my, my internet just went. So the mm. it was annoying because it was exactly when I wanted to hear more about what you were saying. What I wanted to hear about <laughs> is what around creating an ICP and having messaging that resonates with that. Like one of one of the things you can do really well is help B2B companies stand out. And you've got quite a unique way of doing this that isn't just speaking to the company to of what they think their ICP wants, who they think their ICP is, but you actually go, you get 
direct market feedback. So I'd love to hear how are you making B2B companies stand out? What what's what's the unique ways of doing it? And where are a lot of people going wrong? You've spoken previously about like the curse of knowledge. I'd love for, for you to explain a little bit more about that for anyone who's listening. Wow, yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a lot to talk about on this subject. Here we go. <laughs> um, but I think this is really where I think this is really where we like stand out. Um, but I'll try to keep it structured. So I think it, it always comes back to first principles, right? Like just know what your audience cares about. It's like when it comes to building a SaaS product, uh, I think uh, YC's motto is build something people want, right? That, that's literally, if you solve that, you're going to get customers and you're going to build a successful business. Um, and I think it's the same for standing out, like know what your audience cares about and just talk about that stuff. Um, so something we do when we work with customers is we help them develop a narrative. Um, and really a narrative is like a, an overarching framework for how you can tell a story again and again. And I've, I've got some content like on YouTube that like breaks this down into like a scientific formula. Um, but building like a narrative or just standing out can only be done from like doing the grunt work, right? And again, it just comes back to basics. It's just about doing the basics well. Um, you know, conducting research, um, speaking to your customers, um, surveying the market, um, you know, looking at competitors. Um, but I really think you should focus on your market before you focus on competitors. Um, and just really identify like, what do they care about? What are their fears, wants, dreams, desires, anxieties? Um, and then that's going to give you a lot of ammunition that you can use like to for your messaging and uh, to bring it to market. Um, and so when it comes to us working with clients, we always do that as a step one. Um, and then th that's kind of like our inputs, you know, the, the research, um, getting like similar to AI, um, like really understanding the audience, uh, their target audience. And then the outputs are just like the ads or the emails that we create that speak directly to their audience, resonate with them, capture their attention and get conversions. And so, like I said, with ChatGPT, bad inputs equals bad outputs. It's the exact same when it comes to marketing. Specifically, I focus on like performance marketing. If you don't know your audience, if you're just copying your competitors, yeah. um, you know, your, your campaigns are just going to be trashed. They're, they're not going to perform well because you just sound like everyone else. Um, the, the curse of knowledge you mentioned there. So it's a cognitive bias where essentially... Um, companies understand their, their product so well, they're so passionate about it, they built it. Um, and so they tend to, you know, assume that their target audience has that much knowledge about their product too. And so they overcomplicate their messaging. Um, and so really like, the secret trick when it comes to like copywriting is just speaking in a very plain, normal language. You know, I always tell team members, I'm like, you know, when I'm critiquing their copyright and I'm like, would you say this to a friend or colleague? If not, you're probably using words that shouldn't be there, um, you know, like, uh, you know, these sort of buzzwords. Um, so that's like a, a really Super quick charge. test. Um, I think, yeah, 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 yeah. Like if, if you were describing a product to a friend, would you ever say, yeah, man, that's going to supercharge? Like you, you would never say that. Um, and so it's just like a quick test of like, you know, uh, are you just adding too much fluff into it? But I think like zooming out a bit, I think, why or how companies um, can stand out. And I think this really like kind of um, ties into the loop of why this sort of um, um, why this change of like outbound is happening as well. 
um, is, is due to like efficiency. People are looking for like more cost effective ways to, to get customers. Ultimately, that's, you know, you know, the, the average person doesn't nerd out about outbound. They just want to get more customers and, you know, live a life that, yeah. that they dream of. Um, and so I think organic content is a massive part of that. Um, like this, you know, this podcast we're doing right now. Um, and it's an effective vehicle to distribute that narrative. You know, there's no point in um, creating this great messaging, speaking to your customers, if you're not going to use those insights or capitalize on those insights through your marketing. Um, and like, in my opinion, content is one of the most effective ways to create demand. So creating demand is marketing to uh, out of market buyers. So people who aren't actively looking for a solution. Um, and like how companies can do that is just create like entertaining, valuable, insightful content um, that resonates with your target audience. So take those, take the insights from that research um, that you did and speak about those things that those people care about. You know, what are their worries? What are their desires, their wants, their fears? Um, you know, what, where are they right now? Uh, you know, stage A and where are they trying to get to stage B? And how can you position your product as the one that, that gets them there? Um, and like why I think organic content is so good is because um, you can test a bunch of different angles and formats and see what sticks. Um, so it's literally like, I view it as like um, an army of digital sales reps, right? Like if you post on YouTube, that video is going to be there collecting views until the end of time, until they decide to get rid of YouTube. It's just there. Rinse and repeat, you know, distributing your narrative um, you know, uh, building trust and authority and persuading people to to work with you, um, and so it's just like these digital sales reps constantly selling on your behalf. Um, and then when you find like what sticks, whether it be like podcast, whether it be talking about specific topics, whether it be uh, specific angles or talking about like a specific pain point, then you can take that those winning concepts and then scale them with paid ads, um, and that's where the the real kind of mm. success comes and i think the, the mistake companies make is they skip straight to paid ads and they're like oh well you know i just slap a few ads together spend some money um and i'm gonna get customers and it's like no that's that's not how it works um like if you look at a lot of companies um and this isn't the case for you know uh, this isn't absolute but a lot of tech companies specifically because that's kind of who i work with um the ones that are successful on paid channels have really killed it on organic channels. They have like they have a really good narrative. Um, they have a really good content strategy, and the paid ads is just like the cherry on top. Um, you know, it, 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 the the good thing about paid ads is it's guaranteed distribution to your uh, to your target audience. With organic content, I can post a YouTube video and nobody will watch it. Whereas like paid ads, you're guaranteeing to put it in front of people. Um, and I think where paid ads becomes really successful is is um, the foundational piece there is like having a good narrative that people care about and positions mm. your company, your product as unique and as something people want. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. That's a real, I think that's really cool. I think one of the things that sometimes I think is quite difficult, even in cold email. So I'm interested to see whether it carries over into kind of like paid, um, paid advertising is sometimes we'll run campaigns and we're testing something it's so difficult to keep so many variables controlled. So you're just testing the thing that you want to test. So we want to test, you know, a variant between two um, email campaigns. Then we have to make the, we have to make the sending or we have to make the lead list exactly the same. Then it's the time of year has to be exactly the same. Use the same inboxes. And it feels like there's 
a constant (laughs) ever-growing list of things to control and because you know I post uh, a fair bit well I used to post a lot more organic content and a lot of it was just just post and post and post and then every now and then I'd review okay did this get the most views but I wouldn't be sure if that was okay but is that what resonated the most does views equal conversions in an ad how do you go about making those judgments uh so a couple of thoughts on this um so like with myself with digiseed i'm happy to run things scrappy um because you know uh, um i can i can run it how i want to run it and so i think like perfection is the enemy of progress right you can really like overthink about these things and create these really nice spreadsheets and like oh, i'm going to track this and track that and all that's doing is taking your time away from just turning on your phone and recording a video or a piece of content or writing a piece of content so. and don't get me wrong I, I do have these frameworks and stuff like that um but like for myself for digiseed i i run things really scrappy i do track it i have like a notion dashboard where i track specific angles so i do have it like down to a bit of a science so like i'll talk about a specific topic in a specific way which is like an angle um and i'll track the engagement on that and i'll also track like what platform it performed better on uh and like the format because uh, a content idea might work really good as like a written post but it might you know absolutely Mm. flop as a video and so you need to track like what the best format is in terms of um clients we, we of course want to be a bit more organized and professional because we're, we're providing a service yeah um but it, it, re- it really depends what we're what we're trying to test like um in the context of of content it's always going to be a bit scrappy um especially when it comes to um like uh pipeline and, and like revenue um because to that you need to do like self-reported attribution uh, so it just ask mm. people where they came from and they'll say like LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok. It's really hard to like pinpoint it to a specific piece of content. And I don't actually know if that's like a, a good use of time. I think it's really like the channel as a whole. Um, and, you know, if you have a sales team, ask, making sure the sales team asks that as a question, like, oh, how did you hear about us? Um, and then when it comes to like ads, you know, you can be a bit more scientific because you have a lot of data. Um, and so you can run controlled, you know, split tests, um, and just do some analysis on, on the back end in a spreadsheet and, uh, you know, try and make it as controlled as possible, uh, and reach, you know, some kind of statistical significance, but that you can't always do that. Um, like, especially if you're an earlier stage company, it's really hard to reach statistical significance because you're just so new and you probably don't yeah. have that many conversions to reach statistical significance. And so you shouldn't just stand there and go, well, we're not going to test because, you know, we can't get a controlled experiment because you're just not going to innovate you're not going to grow um so you know I, I think it's the same of any experiment you just need to you know have some sort of hypothesis what are you trying to experiment you know is it content a versus content b is it ad a versus ad b is it landing page a versus landing page b um you know have an idea of what success looks like when we reach this number of conversions or this type of engagement or somebody books a demo or something like that um and you know just just build upon it from there i think you can easily, easily, and I, I really think, um, like, especially like my ICP, like tech marketers, love overcomplicating stuff, love building these elaborate systems and spreadsheets and stuff like that. But really, a lot of the time, all that's doing is taking you away from doing the actual thing that gets results. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I do think as well, what something that reminded me of, it, when you're talking about statistical significance, 
sometimes I've found like one of the best approaches is to just go for a volume based approach. And eventually you'll hit on something where the effect size is so big. You've landed on something that's so effective that you just know there's not a shadow of a doubt. People are mentioning it in sales calls. There's spikes on just mm-hmm. like signups. You can, it's one of those ones where you, there's no doubt. And I think that's definitely something um, to consider. And on that topic of volume, I, you know, as you were telling, I've, I've spent a lot of time on your LinkedIn profile. Um, you've posted previously about your AI infinite angle generation methodologies where you can go from zero to loads of different ways, brainstorming with an AI to yeah, produce lots of angles. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that process. I think Patrick also have some some good input because he's definitely the one that can, within our company, that uses AI the best. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about mm. that, Liam. Not sure that's yeah. true, but thank you, um, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, again, it's just inputs and outputs. Um, so like step one with ChatGPT is like, hey, here's what I do, who should I target and what do they care about? Um, and it, it does an okay job, but the issue is, is like, okay, well, where is it getting this information? Is this information outdated? Because I know there was like a time cap. I'm, I'm not sure if there is anymore. Um, and so it's kind of like, should I trust this? Should I not? Like, you know, where are the sources? Um, and so how you can take control of that is you become the source. And so um, as part of like our research process, what we'll do is we'll, of course, do like voice of customer research. So I will physically interview um, my clients' customers um, and I will record that interview. And so what I can do is transcribe those interviews and feed that into ChatGPT uh, to categorize the, the transcription to say, okay, what does this person care about? What value propositions do they want to see? What are they worried about? What objections do they have? That kind of stuff. That's one input. Another input is I love going to places like, um, well, communities, Um like whether it be Reddit, whether it be private Slack communities, uh, could be places like G2, Twitter. Um, the more private the community, uh, the the juicier the the insights you get because people are comfortable with with like sharing things. Um, and so again, you can take, you know, I could give ChatGPT a Reddit URL um, and say, hey, based on this criteria I give you, because I, ha- I have frameworks to make sure it's all organized. Like you know basically fill in the blanks. Tell me what this person cares about. Tell me what their anxieties are, what objections they have, that sort of stuff. Um, and so when, once you have the, yeah. the, the most important part there is the inputs. Um, and then you feed that into chat GPT. And then from there, it's just a case of, you know, getting it to do what you want. Um, okay. Come up with um, angles based on this pain point or, um, you know, mm. write this, do this. Um, and then it's just, you know, uh, you know, come up with as many as you want, but the, the, the most important thing is the um, is the inputs, um, and it, it's it's powerful because you know the the alternative to that is sifting through these things, going to Reddit, sifting through it for hours and hours, and then trying to make sense of it all. Um, whereas you know, there's now AI that can can do that for you. Um, but I've always said, like to my team and just a general principle, is like don't ever use ChatGPT as a crutch for like your own judgment and critical thinking. Um, Like you always need to review it. You always need to have that human layer because the day we just kind of outsource everything to ChatGPT is like the the day we lose our secret source. Um, And so, yeah, it can save you a lot of time, Um, uh, but it's all about the inputs. 
don't use chat gpt nice, as a crutch nice. i think that's the sound bite from this podcast <laughs> <laughs> nice true. so liam i think we're gonna um we want to move a little bit more obviously you've got all this uh great knowledge that everyone will be uh very excited to hear and you've obviously acquired this over many years and it's been a journey every entrepreneur has a as a journey so i'd like to dive into a little bit more of that side with you now um can you maybe just tell us a little bit about like your background, where your entrepreneurial journey started um, and how you've kind of come to this point? Yeah, so I have an unconventional background. Um, I I joined the army, the British army straight out of school. So at like 17, I went into the careers office at 15 years old. Um, and so I didn't go to college. I didn't go to university, which when you work in tech, yeah, you, you're definitely the, the odd one out. Um, I then, you know, I was in the army for several years. Um, I then joined like a large American tech company as an SDR. And that's where I did my stint as an SDR. Uh, so they were like pre IPO, you know, hundreds of employees, you know, hundred million ARR or something, a really fast growth, uh, environment. And I think, um, the, and I still know that the day I decided I wanted to pursue entrepreneurship is when I went to a, um, an event at that company and it was at a, a university in London and it was like a, um, a startup event or something. And, you know, I was there as an BDR trying to like close meetings and stuff. Um, and, but everyone there, all the, all the other people, all the stands, all the attendees were really young, you know, students. Um, and so, you know, like early twenties, um, and they were like talking about business. They were saying, yeah, I run this startup. I've raised this much money. And that absolutely blew my mind, like genuinely blew my mind because I thought, to build a business, to run a business, you had to be, you know, in your 30s, 40s, you had to have your shit really figured out. You had to be this type of person. Um, and, you know, I yeah. spent most of my young younger years in the army. And so this is very foreign to me. You know, it might sound stupid, but this was very foreign to me. And from that day forward, I've always been someone that like really loves a challenge and pushing myself. And from that day forward, I set my eyes on it. Um, and it was really, it became this uh, this itch I really, really wanted to scratch. And so then I was very strategic. I was like, okay, well, being a BDR sucks. <laughs> I really didn't like it. And I was like, <laughs> I need to become a more um, well-rounded, uh, you know, leader, I guess. And so I think I got my leadership skills from the army. That was really good for like building uh, leadership skills, my communication skills, um, you know, just the ability to run into the unknown the army was really good for that but like my kind of yeah. hard skills i think i needed to focus on and so what i did then is i joined a, uh, a much earlier stage startup so i went from a company with like hundreds of employees to like 10 employees um, and i think i was like employee number 10 um, and so i was like the first uh, growth hire there and the great thing is there i worked directly underneath the founder slash ceo and so he just exposed me to so many different areas of the business um, that, you know, I just hadn't had experience with, you know, as an SDR at a big company, honestly, you're, you're quite looked down upon. You really are just like, you know, the, the way you get treated is, is quite bad. You're, you're really seen as this like entry level okay. person. Um, whereas in this company, I was given so much responsibility. I was like really trusted. Um, you know, it, it was a really good culture. I could challenge the founder or anyone, you know, we could challenge each other, um, you know, professionally if, if we disagreed with each other and it was all about working towards the best solution. And then that's when the penny really dropped where I was like, wow, okay. Um, cause I got good insight into seeing how a business is run. 
and I was like, okay, I actually think I can do this because, um, and maybe this wasn't his intention, but the, the founder I was working with, you know, um, he, you know, he, he wouldn't act like he had all the answers. He, he wouldn't act like he was, you know, top of the mountain and he was the boss and he knew everything. Um, you know, he would come to me for, for answers and, you know, that, that was the kind of culture there. And I was like, wow, okay, maybe I don't need to be this sort of CEO figure that is, uh, I guess the, the, the narrative that's, that's typically pushed. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's when at that company is when I finally made the jump to, um, to start DigiSeed, but like, um, Mm. what was happening behind the scenes throughout this whole process is me starting and failing a lot of side projects you know i've i've probably <laughs> um i've probably spent tens of thousands of pounds like it's crazy like probably more than more money than the average person has like in their savings i've spent and lost on failed ventures um i mean the lessons i learned from all of that is like invaluable and it's paid itself off um you know due to did you see being successful um but yeah ever since that day at that fair man i was just so inspired and I was like, if I, I've always had this attitude of like, if they can do it, then why can't I? And I think, you know, always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder from things that happened as a child. Um, and so I was just like, right, let's do it. <laughs> um, so yeah, wild journey. Nice. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it sounds like a wild ride for sure. Um, you, it was interesting. You mentioned there, um, obviously you went uh, straight out of school into the army and then you joined a tech company and not having a degree, whatever it felt, you kind of felt out of place. It sounds like at different points in that career, there were times where you maybe felt like a challenge or some adversity from the people around. What would you say was like the biggest challenge all throughout that? Oh, okay. Um, so honestly, the biggest challenge for me, um, and I'm a very open person, uh, right? Um, and so we might get a bit deep here, but I had, I, I think I was like, uh, I had... I really suffered from men- mental health issues like when I first joined that company. And the the crazy thing is when I was in the army, um, that was not a thing. This was frowned upon. Like if somebody, you know, complained about their mental health or showed like vulnerability or weakness, this was really frowned upon. Uh, you would become, you would, you would kind of um, uh, lose your place in the pack to, uh, to explain it that way. Um, but then yeah. when I joined this tech company, I felt like an alien um, you know, in the army, you are taught to present yourself a certain way, act a certain way in civilian, uh, what I call civilian street, you know, it's, it's not the same. It's, it's a bit chaotic. And so I felt very, very out of place and I really, really struggled to settle. And so it just impacted my mental health. You know, I started speaking with a therapist for the first time in my life, which was like transformative. Um, and so that, that was definitely the hardest part. Um, and of course me being me, you know, uh, also trying to embark on this like journey of entrepreneurship while I'm going through all this like this sort of crap behind the scenes um that was definitely the hard part but the light of the end of the tunnel was um when I joined that next company man like absolute like breath of fresh air um like the whole time I was there it really opened my eyes into like how a company should be run you know um just the culture nobody ever was like bitchy or aggressive or raised their voice everyone was really supportive everyone was just like obsessed about making the customer successful and growing the company. Um, and so it was like, it was kind of like, you know, um, dark and light just comparing those two companies. But yeah, that, that period of my life was like really, really challenging, like really challenging. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like this is the thing, obviously we, we do like to go deep on this because every entrepreneur has got a, got a story and usually there's some in there. 
um, and it's usually contributed to them being such a good entrepreneur that they are today. Um, interesting as well, you mentioned before about lots of different side projects and businesses that you tried, you invested money into and it didn't quite work out. Um, do you have, I mean, obviously that's like the unglamorous side of starting a business is that it's not always likely to, to pick up. Do you have, like, what would you say is like the, any advice for someone who's kind of at that point, they're starting off, things might fail, their first business might not be going so well. Like what's the, what would you say to someone in that position? It's, it's really simple. Just keep pushing forward. Just put one foot in front of the other. Um, like I think um, if you want to um, like start a business or if you want to like enter that world, I think there's, I think um, there's someone who refers to it as like the indoctrination period, this period where you're just researching everything. You're just trying to learn everything. You're reading all these business books. You're um, just like, you know, glued to your laptop for 12 hours a day and everyone's like questioning, are you okay or not? Like, I think you have to go through that period um, and and just make these mistakes. Like if you if you come up with a good idea, you know, run with it and, and see what happens. Um, just don't be stupid and, you know, make sure you've, you've got the financial means to like support yourself. Um, but honestly, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any other way, uh, or at least this is how, you know, my preference is, is to just like brute force it is just like, I, this is my North star. I know this is what, how I want, you know, to live my life. This is the goal I'm working towards. And just like, just, just brute force it, just research as much as possible, speak to people. Um, you know, even if you need to change career so that you're getting more relevant experience in a field that you then eventually want to build a business in, um, you know, go online places like Twitter, uh, discord, LinkedIn, uh, I'd say probably Twitter's the best for like, you know, informal stuff um, and just connect with people. There's, there's, there's a really big community of um, entrepreneurs, you know, wannabe entrepreneurs on like social media that, you know, um, are kind of like this big band of brothers and sisters all working towards this great mission um, and just, you know, bounce ideas with them. This is how like I, I met you guys, right? Um, you know, this is why we're on this podcast right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think my best advice would just be like, just, just keep pushing forward. There's, sorry, there's no, there's no sexy, like secret source. It's just, you, you've got to go through that period. Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. It's uh, there's, there's no shortcuts. You've got to, you've got to put the work in. Um, but obviously the good side of entrepreneurship are that if it goes well, you do get the upsides. So Ryan is telling me that you're, uh, you're somewhere in the world right now. That's, that's not home. Is that right? It's not cold. Yeah, yeah, yes. It's, it's not, not cold. cold. Well. Uh, it is cold. <laughs> it, 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 it is cold, actually. So, yeah. Um, uh, uh, earlier this year, um, my girlfriend and I decided to start um, traveling around Europe. So, because of uh, you know Britain's decision to to leave the European Union, uh, every ninety days we we um, we bounce countries around Europe because I want to remain within um, a similar time zone to the UK. So yeah, right now I'm in Montenegro. Uh, we arrived here on this weekend. Oh, nice. Um, and then, yeah, we just kind of bounce around uh, like every 90 days or so. I think it is uh, it is quite stressful at the beginning, like, you know, finding a gym, a co-working spot, like getting settled. It is quite stressful. Um, like if you saw my setup right now, it's pretty scrappy and, um, you know, I'd like to have something <laughs> a bit more permanent. So I think 
we've we've probably got like a couple more countries in us and then we're going to find somewhere a bit more permanent um and that might be the uk it might not be like we're pretty open-minded but this is this is one of the reasons you know as like i'm quite a deep guy you know there's uh eventually you know once upon a time you know i was sitting there dreaming of of this reality of being able to travel you know one um one of my first goals when i started doing this thing was um that having the ability to just book a flight and to go wherever i want without having to get permission from somebody that was just that was just my like it wasn't drive a ferrari and be a multi-billionaire it was literally just hop on a flight and ask not have to ask anyone permission um and everything else is just like yeah. you know a bonus after that um and so yeah it's yeah. like Time this is this is freedom. probably yeah. a yeah yeah it's probably a lesson for for us all though is like you know the what today is what we used to dream of once upon a time and so you know gotta enjoy it yeah i absolutely I completely absolutely. agree for me the the biggest thing is um like time location freedom and you know there are times when me and patrick were traveling earlier this year where like you know we'd arrive at a new location and maybe the co-working place we we work at hasn't got like perfect wi-fi and I'd be like, oh, this is so annoying. <laughs> and then you kind of have to take a step back and go, hang on. <laughs> this, this, you, you need to be like, yeah, hang on. grateful of the kind I'm of halfway around the world. Yeah, I'm halfway around the world, yeah, yeah, at, yeah. working on a laptop, go anywhere, like just change it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. First world so, problems, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It puts it into perspective. Um, Liam. Uh, a strange question perhaps but do you have any odd or weird life hacks like uh writing a journal for example i do i do write uh i do have a journal so um and i think that there's a lot of like negative stigma attached to all this stuff for men because like we're all expected to be like you know all alpha male and stuff like that and it's like you know i've i've been there i've done that um and it's a one way street um, and so when I was going through this phase of like really struggling with mental health, I, I was kind of like, look, this either goes down path A, which is not a good path, or I take it down path B. Um, and path B was like self-development. Um, and so, yeah, like journaling was part of that. I tried to, um, meditate often, um, just like, you know, being grateful for, you know, um, <laughs> the, the life you're living, stuff like that. It's just, um, and maybe this stuff works, maybe it doesn't. I think the the underlying theme of it all is positivity, is just uh, remain positive. Like um, business can be really, really stressful. And especially like even outside of business, just what's going on in the world over the last few years, like um, things have become really difficult. I think just like um, pausing and being mindful, like, um, you know, go, goes a long way. So yeah, I journal, I try to exercise as much as possible. Sleep is my number one important thing. You know, I get, eight hours sleep minimum per night i drink a lot of water you know i try to do all the basics to to um <laughs> to m- maximize my my output as much as possible because look i've said this like three times now inputs outputs if you don't treat your body well and your mind well <laughs> then you're not going to be able to create um high value work so i think i think that's the key takeaway here that that's probably the title of this is inputs outputs. <laughs> yeah garbage in garbage out good stuff in good stuff yeah, out yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously, you know, you're, you're pushing ahead with this. You've, you've got a certain quality of life. You've got your business to a certain point. What sort of 
motivates you to keep pushing forward? What motivates you and what are you kind of looking forward to in the future? Yeah. So I think if you rely solely on motivation, you're going to be disappointed um, because it's very hard to wake up every day motivated. And so I I have my old trusty chip on the shoulder. <laughs> I think that's what keeps keeps me like pushing forward is I, I just always, um, I, I don't know, I'm just like, I have an unhealthy obsession with like pushing myself. I kind of, for, for whatever reason, I always decide to choose like the hard path, uh, the uncomfortable path. Um, you know, in the, um, in the military, there was this term, it was like, uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and I think I've just like maybe taken that a bit too serious. Um, but yeah, it's just, <laughs> I, I have like a, you know, a, um, a North star that I want to hit. Uh, I, w- I want to live my life a certain way and it's not lavish. Um, but you know, I just want to, um, you know, achieve certain things and, and that's what gets me out of bed every morning and, you know, happy to work on Saturdays and Sundays without moaning is just that, you know, I, I don't know what to call it because I don't think motivation is enough. Um, it, it's just sort of in my DNA. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, completely. It's a uh, determination plus motivation. And uh, yeah, sounds like you've, uh, you've got it in your bones. That's for sure. Um, okay. I think we've covered off this sort of section. Um, Ryan, do you have anything further you want to ask Liam? Um, I'm just trying to think. I think the the stuff around like the journaling was quite interesting. I'd be quite interested to know in terms of like when you're journaling, what what types of things are you actually writing down? Because I've I wouldn't say necessarily I've started journaling, but every now and then I'll take like a an evening off working and I'll just start like just write down my thoughts, think about okay what what's what's going on in my life um what do i want to fix so for example there was a period i wasn't doing much exercise and i was just kind of writing down thinking brainstorming and it kind of came to the conclusion is that i just find the gym really boring so i found like another sport that i can do that's more class-based and with other people so it's kind of like problem solving is journaling but i don't know if that's like the typical thing that people mean when journaling so it'd be cool to know like what Obviously, you don't have to share exactly what you're writing down, but what what topics are you discussing? What do you do? You use it emotionally, practically. Like, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, all of the above. So, I think there's really no rules, um, and mm. there needs to be no rules because as soon as you start creating rules and systems, you're creating friction, right? Um, and so, it's like if you read Atomic Habits, you know, one of the principles to creating good habits or forming good habits is reducing friction, making it easy and accessible. Um, and so I just let it flow naturally, you know, um, I mean, I've, I've kept a journal for like the last four, uh, three, four years or something. And man, there must be a crazy story going on in there, like ups and downs and all sorts. Um, but sometimes <laughs> it's, you know, if I, if I feel like quite emotional, like angry or upset about something, I'll just put it onto paper. Um, and I often find that, you know, say if I was angry about something or frustrated about something, I often find you know, the morning after I'm like, wait, that wasn't even a big deal. Um, and so I feel like I kind of just by putting it on paper, I've sort of got that weight off my shoulders. Um, other times there's more like logical stuff where, you know, I'm thinking more big picture about where I want to take the business, what I want to achieve. And again, just putting that, those thoughts onto paper, it makes it more deliberate. Um, and I think it to, to write forces, Mm. um, 
to write you you are forced to think right because you have to put that word on paper and so i think it just provides a lot of clarity if if i could say the the, the biggest take takeaway uh from journaling for me is clarity and i think um mm. the the inverse to, to clarity i think is and look i'm i'm you know um not a medical professional but i think the opposite to clarity is like anxiety is like i think that's what a lot of founders struggle with is when they don't know exactly what they're doing and when they're supposed to be doing it and what they should be working on right now. That's where anxiety starts to creep in and they start like doubting things. Um, and so I think like journaling helps a lot with just being laser focused on, on what needs to be done. And then also like, yeah, that sort of putting your emotions on paper. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess also, yeah, when, whenever you're doing dealing with anything, just seeing it, and articulating it, I completely agree, definitely helps you to think. And I've definitely had times where, you know, when you're running a business, you constantly want to be pushing the ball forwards, like moving forwards. And if you're not sure exactly what strategy you're going for, that can cause like a bit of stress. I think also, you know, when you're remotely with a co-founder, sometimes when previously we haven't been so like dead straight on what our targets are, what our strategy is, there'd be times where I was thinking, oh no, am I... Am I underworking? Am I not pulling my end of the, like, pulling, pulling my, mm. um, I can't remember what I'm saying I'm trying to come up with, but um, as in, I'm not putting, <laughs> I'm not doing the work I should be doing. Um, and I think, yeah, having that clarity would definitely be something, something that helps a lot. Yeah, I think um, it would be quite good for like being able to kind of pull out, be able to zoom out and say, okay, there's a zillion and one things on my to-do list. Realistically, mm. most of them are not that important. They're just they've found their way into it because they're urgent because someone's just wanted them there and actually saying, okay, hang on, what's the one thing that's going to push things forward? And did I do it yesterday? Has it carried over to today? I think that would be quite useful. I wouldn't say I, I journal, but I definitely do like write down every now and again, just do like a reflection and just start writing wherever things at. And mm. it's, it's therapeutic because you're just like, okay, this is everything, everything I can think of, just start crossing Absolutely. things off, you know? I think it's, it's important to say, right, once upon a time, I would laugh at this kind of stuff. Like, you know, in, in, you know, in the military, it's, it's very like toxic masculinity. You know, everything's very macho. Um, you know, it, I mean, I could go on and on with like all the types of examples it was. And so that kind of stuff was like considered a bit woo-woo, you know, um, and to think like yeah. how, you know, how things have switched. Um, you know, I think... I think a lot of men struggle with, um, and, and women, but you know, I'm a man, so I can only speak for men. Um, I think a lot of us bottle up our emotions and, and, uh, eventually, uh, that bottle becomes very full and, uh, starts to explode. Um, and I think, you know, you need to look after yourself. And I, I, for me personally, journaling has been one of those things, but I know there's, there's loads of other outlets as well, like, you know, sports, even just working. Some people, um, like to do that, but yeah, I think it's so important. Yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely agree on that one. And it's good that it's sort of like removing the, the kind of stigma and stuff around it because at the end of the day, that's what works. That's what helps us get results. You know, who's laughing now sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I think nice. uh, that's probably a nice, nice point to round it off on. Um, Liam, I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us about not only you know, all the interesting things that you're talking about, that you talk about online from a professional point of view, but also 
to kind of go a little bit more um, vulnerable and talk about the different things that have happened in your life and how that's impacted how you're moving forwards. That's definitely something that we really appreciate. If people want to learn more about you, maybe contact you about, you know, your services and how you could help them, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, just go to my company's website, so digc.co. I think my my handle on like Twitter and Instagram is like Liam Sass. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Liam Dunn. Obviously, I'll be an employee of Digiseed. Um, and yeah, reach out. We'd love to chat. All right. Speak soon. Fantastic. Right, cheers. Appreciate you coming on, Bye. Liam. Thank you. Bye. No worries. Nice.